Welcome to this episode of the Civil Law Podcast from Pump Court Chambers. Today we're joined by Emma Soul. Emma is a member of Pump Court's employment law team. She joined Pump Court earlier this year, having established a mixed and very successful practice over 10 years in London and Kent. And she specialises in a range of employment matters for both the employer and employee, covering discrimination, whistleblowing, restraint of trade, um, and in parallel has established an extensive personal injury practice, which brings us smoothly on to our topic for the day, which is personal injury claims and injury feelings in the employment tribunal. So welcome to the podcast, Emma. Thank you, Louisa. Hello. Hello, and thank you very much for joining us today. No problem. Thanks. So I understand that our discussion today is going to be not too heavy on the law and authority, but hopefully a very helpful uh, perhaps more practical guide to claiming for personal injury alongside injury feelings in the employment tribunal. That's it, yes. Um, there, there are authorities on this, but the reality is that I think what most people will be interested in is even where to start when you're thinking about personal injury in employment tribunals rather than the authorities themselves. Yes, and I, I think it sounds as if it's going to be a very helpful discussion. I suppose when talking about where to start, the first question then really is, can the Employment Tribunal make awards for personal injury? And if so, in what circumstances? Yeah, so obviously we know, but it's worth refreshing that in unfair dismissal, personal injury claims are an absolute no-no. But under the Equality Act, any claim for discrimination if personal injury has been caused either partially or entirely as a result of any act of discrimination, then personal injury is potentially something that the tribunal can award. And the crossover then from uh, discrimination also comes into whistleblowing claims. So detriment claims for whistleblowing, you can also claim personal injury in relation to that. So what circumstances, aside from when we don't have a claim which is only for unfair dismissal in what circumstances would you say that we would be considering seeking um, damages for personal injury in the employment tribunal yeah well I suppose those which are most obviously going to be claims that we want to bring are ones where the discrimination itself has plainly caused um, an injury more often than not it's it's a psychological injury but where it wasn't there before and suddenly is there or when you've got some form of um, personal injury that is exacerbated as a result of stress which can often happen and that's caused as a result of the discrimination that exacerbation but that alone wouldn't be why you would consider a claim for personal injury because even identifying that that's a, a route you want to go down has different um brings with it different issues not least um the cost of potentially an expert which we'll talk about later so where for example because in employment tribunals we've got the um option of going just for injury to feelings and where for example your psychological injury is a depression or anxiety type um injury and actually you could cover that off quite nicely with an injury to feeling award, then you might want to consider just bringing a claim for injury to feelings, but reflecting in that award the fact that the depression and anxiety was caused and perhaps you had medication. 
So firstly, the circumstances are firstly where obviously you have suffered either the onset of personal injury or the exacerbation of it. But then secondly, taking a step back and saying, do I really need to go down this route, which is inevitably going to add costs and, and potential complications? Or can I simply rely on an injury to feelings award? Yeah, that, that's interesting because I suppose we're all very used to claiming for injury to feelings in the employment tribunal. Uh, and so what people really will be interested in and, and what flows on from that quite nicely really is the crossover between the two because there are some circumstances, like you say, where we, we might have suffered from or suffered from an exacerbation of anxiety or depression, for example, and that can be covered under injury to feelings. But in, in what circumstances would you say it would be more appropriate to claim for personal injury rather than simply rely on the injury to feelings? And perhaps why um, are we able to obtain a higher amount of compensation under personal injury, for example? Well, so in some circumstances, actually things like um, injury to feelings in terms of the hurt that one feels and the upset that one feels can be disentangled from depression and feeling low, especially in cases of severe depression, where actually the symptoms of depression might be more than just feeling related. So in some really, um, in some really severe circumstances, you might be leading into some form of PTSD or something along those lines where you have hallucinations, uh, disassociation, things that are um, medically explicable as a result of the psychological injury, but you wouldn't necessarily call hurt feelings or injury to feelings. So it's where you've got that um, break in symptoms, if you like, from what one would normally call feelings to actually real medical symptoms that you'd certainly go down the route of, of seeking a PI um, claim. And then you could get, and then you will get, the injury to feelings part, which need not be linked to the psychological injury. They're just the natural hurt caused by the discrimination and the PI claim. But where you've got the two sort of weaving together, and more often than not, I think this is probably the case. So where you've got both depression and the upset and, and being sad because of what happened, that's when you probably not to think carefully about whether or not you go down the route of, of claiming PI as a separate award. That's helpful. And in terms of the crossover between injury feelings and personal injury, do you find that the Employment Tribunal will make two separate awards for personal injury and for injury feelings, but bear in mind the fact that they are making both awards and so be careful not to I suppose doubly award the claimant yeah. compensation for the same injury. Yeah so the case of um, HM Prison Services and some of the EAT uh, made plain that the tribunal should be acutely aware not to doubly award hurt feelings and courts and tribunals are really aware of that and so regardless of which side you're on that's something you want to keep referring the tribunal to um, a particular relation to the claimant practically speaking it's really important then that where you are bringing both claims that in your witness statement and of course, that's the start point for the tribunal because it's findings of fact on your injury to feeling and indeed your 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 psychological or personal injury. Um, you separate the two out. So I was feeling upset. This really upset me. I was really shocked. X, Y, and Z. And it then later transpired that it also 
resulted in depression, um, I can eat, blah, blah, blah. And then you're talking about more the medical symptoms. But then those need to be separated out in the witness statement. But yet that will assist then the tribunal in at least feeling satisfied that they're not doubly recovering. But inevitably, there will be a bit of a, a, a reduction in those cases anyway. Mm. Um, and in terms of the, the evidence that you would be producing to demonstrate that there's been personal injury and the level of that injury what type of evidence would you say is necessary do we well, what medical evidence do we need is witness evidence sufficient or do we need expert evidence yeah so this is probably the most crucial of sort of case management considerations for the claimant and indeed the tribunal and the respondent. And it's made more, I would say, not less complicated by the lack of formality in tribunals. In PI claims that I do um, a fair few of as well outside of the employment arena, it, everything's set in, in stone. One knows exactly what you need to do and, and there are pro forma directions on the instruction of experts. Indeed, you can't bring a personal injury claim unless you've got the medical evidence to support it. In tribunals, of course, the employment tribunal, you do not need a medical legal report to pursue a personal injury claim. So it's a question as to whether or not you want to go down that route. So as to whether or not you need it, I suppose the first question would be whether or not you can prove the requisite parts of the claim. So not just that you were suffering from um, the injury, but that it was caused by the discrimination. Whether or not there's enough in, enough in your records, your medical records, GP records to prove that of itself. And, and you perhaps might want to have an open discussion with the respondent about that insofar as explaining that that's what you're going to be relying on and seeing what their position is. And if they say that that's not enough, then you would want to go down the route of the expert evidence. But it's worth thinking about that really early on because it, it does take a huge amount of time to go through that those steps of um, instructing a medical expert, not least finding one, and then finding one who's affordable for everybody, and then instructing them, and then going backwards and forwards, getting a finalised report. So as to whether or not you get the medical a medical expert report, that is a really tricky issue. As to the factual evidence, as I've already touched on, plainly that needs to be covered off in, in good detail in the witness statement. And actually that raises a really um, crucial question there as to when you um, draft that witness statement of remedy. Because certainly I've had cases where you're told that you're dealing with liability and remedy at the hearing, and then naturally it doesn't go to the judgment, and so you then come back for remedy. And actually what's happened in the interim is you've got the judgment and the judgment's found in favour for you on some, but not on other of the allegations of discrimination. And so whilst you've got a witness statement that says, the thing that really hurt me most was this particular act of discrimination, that's then not found. Um, of course, you can only reflect the actual truth of what the claimant says. But if you've already dealt with that and then one of those allegations goes, your remedy statement or remedies going to be in trouble because the allegations which were found to be proved you're not going to have focused on them um and so it was in terms of that sort of leads me on to the practical issues of the evidence 
um, and case management that in terms of a claim and what you'd want to do um, in most cases is have a liability hearing first and once you've got those um, decisions from the tribunal then deal with factual evidence on remedy and injury uh, in particular injury to feelings and personal injury. Yeah, I mean, in terms of whether to instruct an expert or not, aside from the question of whether or not, as you say, it's affordable, it seems to me that it would be a lot harder claiming an exacerbation of an existing, for example, mental health injury without an expert report than it would claiming that a certain incident had caused the existence at all of a mental health injury because you can simply point to medical records that demonstrate it had never appeared before and suddenly it now has appeared and uh, and certainly would be harder to prove that an injury has just been exacerbated um, and, and proving the necessary causation that that was caused by the discrimination and costs in the employment tribunal perhaps would be a do you think would be a, a bar to yeah people bringing personal injury claims that can be evidenced by an expert report yeah I think they absolutely are not least because the cost of expert evidence is so high and particularly where for example in an employment case if you have um, findings as I just mentioned of some allegations being proved other allegations not being proved but those are the ones that aren't proved plainly having caused the claimant upset then your letter of instructions in order to be complete is going to be quite lengthy and ask the the expert to deal with issues of apportionment in relation to um, what part of the psychological injury the harm that that has now been caused what part of that harm is a caused by the non-proved allegations versus the proved allegations and you end up with quite a lengthy um, letter of instruction which in turn adds costs although once you're at that stage once you have got a list of of a short shopping list of what has been found proved then of course you've already won as a claimant and so the cost should um, at the very least be shared and so that would help it also potentially supports the idea that you probably want to put off instructing an expert until after the liability hearing. Before you make a decision on which way you're going, it's worth just doing a um, looking around, seeing how much things would cost. Because obviously claimants, unless they're insured, quite often have limited funds. Mm. And, and I think that comes back nicely to your point about um, at directions hearings, ensuring that in a personal injury case there's a separate liability and remedy hearing then the importance of that because if the claimant is going to instruct a medical expert well there's just seems to be no point instructing uh, or incurring the cost of instructing um, an expert prior to not only knowing whether or not the claim is successful but if it is knowing on what which exact ground and under which particular alleged detriments which of those has been have been found proven and which haven't yeah that brings it with its own problems though and actually it's I don't although I think practically speaking that is the way forward I'm quite often uneasy about it insofar as obviously what we want to do in employment is always have an eye on settling um and as a respondent unless you know the fullness of the claim you're not you're unlikely to start thinking about offers um and obviously without the medical evidence you're you're somewhat hamstrung with making a proper offer 
And do you find that can be a bar to settlement in personal injury claims in the employment tribunal? Yes, although on the flip side of the flip side, you've then got the argument that although we don't have medical evidence, but this is where we're pushing our case. We might be wrong. We put it this high. And the reality is if we don't settle now and if we go down the route of personal injury and expert evidence, both sides are going to have to put their hands in their pockets. We might not agree it. It's going to add costs. So you can always come back on those arguments if 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 people are reluctant to make offers in the absence of the report. And mm-hmm. to be honest, if you're going down that route, you should have medical re- records at least that illustrate at least what you might be going to say. The main yeah, issue- and then it's a question of risk in the same way as, as any other settlement discussion. Yeah, exactly. And the main issue really will be causation because, you know, I suppose really when we're talking, I am thinking about psychiatric illness at all times, but it's quite rare that it suddenly appears. There's normally a number of things going on in somebody's life or in their history where you could question apportionment. But then um, just on that point, on apportionment, as a claimant, if you're worried about costs, what you can say to the respondent or suggest to the respondent that it's absolutely in the respondent's interest if there are these other issues for them to get a medical report as well. Because in the absence of that, the claimant might be able to say, oh, no, no, all of that was in the past. It's all been down to to this discrimination, whereas with an expert and with a proper letter of instruction and, and thought from the respondent, you might be able to start breaking the, the apportionment down so that you're not uh, on the line for all of the illness. Mm-hmm. And in a situation where the claimant has obtained an expert report, is it usual or wise to have the expert give live evidence or is their report alone enough? I've recently had a question out that was slightly odd direction from the tribunal. I wasn't involved at the case management stage, which effectively said that if the part either of the parties didn't agree with the joint expert report or wanted to challenge it, that the expert could attend. Which is odd in so far as if you've only got one expert report and you don't have the option of having your own single expert and you challenge the joint but without other medical experts to fill in the gaps, if you like, where you challenge and succeed, it leaves the tribunal in difficulty. So I haven't yet come across an employment tribunal case where it has been beneficial to have the expert there. And I think the reason for that is, is this, that insofar as dealing with personal injury isn't in any forum um, really a science, despite it actually being a science because of it being medicine, uh, in employment tribunals, the tribunal is more persuaded or susceptible by arguments that aren't entirely based on on the medical report. They're not as tied to the need for a medical legal report as as the courts are. And so where you want to challenge an expert's report in the court, for example, there is set rules and you must do it and the court would find it very difficult to put their opinion in place where there's a gap. In tribunals, I think the position's different um, and they are more willing to step in to the arena of making an educated, albeit not a medically educated guess as to what the issues are or the uh, on findings of fact. So I think, and, and, and of course, then it comes down to cost because the cost of having an expert in tribunal all day is, is astronomical. 
Yes, and I know that you referred to there being set directions, for example, if one was bringing a personal injury claim in civil courts. Mm -hmm. And one of the directions you referred to it being important to ask for at a preliminary hearing for case management in the employment tribunal is asking for a separate liability hearing to remedy. What Mm -hmm. other directions would you be looking for in a personal injury claim in the ET? A timetable for agreeing a letter of instruction. Um, I think the letter of instruction to an expert is so important um, that you'd yeah you'd certainly want a timetable for that and what to do in the event that you can't agree. Now you'll know yourself whether or not your oppo on the other side is somebody you can get on with or whether you'll need um, a sort of safety net in terms of coming back to the tribunal. But it, I think it's probably worth having there because having the safety net going back to the tribunal already in the timetable so that it keeps people moving and thinking about getting things done on within a certain time frame. Um, obviously, disclosure of medical records and the like. But then after, you've, you'd also want a period of asking questions, same as you would do in the civil court. So once you've got the joint medical expert report, you then have... Um, 21 days to come back and ask further questions and those questions aren't questions that you wanted to ask originally they're questions of clarification of the report so for example where there's the expert has mentioned something that happened in the claimant's life but hasn't then drawn it back to how that impacted on their on their resolution you might ask for clarification as to whether or not the expert's saying that something else has caused the um the illness um, so you'd have that. The difficulty, though, even with those directions, again, whilst in a civil court, I've had applications um, galore with people going beyond the directions to ask additional questions in tribunal because things are so informal. You can get in a sort of backwards, forwards tennis match of just asking question after question. And so it'd be really good to just have an understanding between you, the tribunal and the other side that these are going to be stuck to um, and that in the event that you don't get clarification that you wanted, then you might ask the expert to come, for example, or then you might have an opportunity to have your own expert, um, but just some, thinking through those other eventualities so that you don't end up yeah, just going backwards and forwards to the expert and not really getting to a resolution before the hearing because ideally that's that's the aim of the game is to get to the hearing at a point where all the medical evidence is finalized and everybody knows each other's position and on that point what you'd really want as well early as possible is both the schedule addressing the particular um illness you're saying was suffered and any consequential loss so any treatment loss of earnings caused by that and then the counter schedule so that everybody knows and quite often Unfortunately, that happens very close in time to the hearing, but ideally that would happen before then. Um, And perhaps at the same time as a remedy witness statement so that you can um, properly know what what you're going to have to deal with at the hearing. Yeah, and those consequential losses, I suppose, are are very important and perhaps things that uh, as employment practitioners can be forgotten about whereas in the civil courts a, a personal injury practitioner will, will always include a claim for, for special damages and, and that mm-hmm. would naturally flow what other consequential losses would you recommend including in a personal injury claim in the UT? 
Yeah, well, I was just thinking about this prior to our discussion. Things like um, gratuitous care, so people looking after somebody where they've been particularly unwell, that would just come as a matter of course in even a sort of whiplash case in an RTA for six-month injury. But quite often as employment practitioners, we don't include things like that. Um, because if we do, then they need to be evident, so they can't be just flunging at the end. And it's something I say in all employment cases that you just really must think about the value of the case right at the outset because that's going to determine how you do all sorts of things not least what evidence you need and and particularly so in pi cases and then in pi cases not only thinking about the injury but what as you say flows from that so um the care any treatment that's been recommended um any time you might need off in the future because of extensive treatment or residential treatment now i think you touched on already the importance of the letter of instruction to the expert and I suppose it would be helpful just to discuss what type of information we should be including and I I think when we discussed it a moment ago it was in relation to apportionment which is obviously important to to touch on but what else would you be looking to include? Yeah so I guess that the headline is um, what the injury is so diagnostics so diagnosis causation absolutely crucial um, and then prognosis. So it's not enough to just say, yeah, they've got this injury, they've got PTSD, it was caused by the sexual harassment, the end. You then got to work out how long, firstly, they have suffered with it at what level, so the severity and how long it might last for, and the chances of it reoccurring as well, because that adds into the potential claim. So those sort of three main headings, the diagnostic the causation and then the prognosis. Um, prognosis would include the severity as well. Um, and what you'd want to include, you've got to be careful not to be overly contentious. And what you, what I tend to do is just provide the pleadings. To, and then obviously, if, you've, if you're at the stage where you've had judgment, the judgment as well with probably a, a summary, though, of what the case is, what the claim actually are. As a claimant, you'd probably leave it at that so these are claims and ask for those three headings as a respondent you'd probably want to just point out that it's within the experts gift indeed they should also consider questions of apportionment in terms of how much of this injury is in fact apportioned to the particular loss that's been found but that can be that can become quite contentious and as i said right at the outset once you start adding questions to an expert it gets costly so as keep it as simple as possible but it's got to cover off at the very least those three heads um, and probably as a respondent apportionment as well um, because as I said earlier your questions back to the expert after that are only clarification of the report is already done you can't go back and ask further or you shouldn't be able to go back and ask further questions that you ought to or wanted to ask at the beginning and quite often unfortunately where I've had have had expensive expert reports they're just they're not as good as you'd hope for based on how much they cost because they said the, the right questions aren't aren't asked um, and in particular I think I found tribunals concerned that the expert really understands what the findings of fact on the allegations are not simply the the heading but what the circumstances are that have been found in fact 
and whether or not that's then being questioned in terms of diagnosis causation and, and prognosis of the injury caused. Yeah, that's helpful. I mean, in, in some cases, if we're not at the stage of having already reached a liability judgment, I've sometimes included the, the list of issues yeah. in their yeah. ex, uh, in expert letter of instruction because it's perhaps an easier way for somebody who's not necessarily legally trained to understand yeah. what which of the alleged detriments are said to have led to the personal injury. I don't know whether that's an a, approach that you take at yeah. all or yeah I definitely had especially where that's an agreed list of issues yes what might want to include in that list with agreement on the other side is a quite often list of issues are just liability but if you are thinking about going down the 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 PI route then you might want to break down your um remedy list of issues a bit more as well into the the questions that will essentially form the letter instructions anyway but briefly so Probably wrapping up slightly, I, I suppose the ordinary in a personal injury claim that a lot of people would think of would be through the civil courts. And it's still an option open and available to employees who have suffered personal injury, even because of discrimination. So it, why would you want to pursue your personal injury claim in the employment tribunal rather than the civil courts or the other way around what are the the pros and cons of each if you like um so I suppose there's three main things to ask yourself the first is I've put proof with a question mark in terms of querying which side but actually it's not really proof it's it's where the claim does the claim properly sit within a statutory claim under the Equality Act because I think what lots of lay clients think and come to you and say look I am a disabled person full stop and expect therefore there to be a claim somewhere but of course there's not and you have to fit within quite rigid statutory um, terms as regards to whether or not you've got a claim not least in terms of disability discrimination you have to prove you're disabled in the first instance so does it fit happily within one of those claims under the Equality Act or is it more akin to unreasonable conduct on behalf of the um, employer which has exacerbated an illness or caused an illness because just um, a failure in duty of care of course doesn't naturally or necessarily then make it a claim under the Equality Act so whether or not so firstly whether or not the claims you're making happily fall under the Equality Act and if not is there a PI claim instead a standalone PI claim The other things, of course, you want to think about are time limits. Obviously, if you've got a claim going back years and you haven't even spoken to the lay client until some years after, you're probably going to be wanting to go down the route of a civil claim rather than employment claim because of the time limits. And then the last issue um, really to think about is costs. In civil courts now, we've got the COCS protection. So the moment you put in a PI claim you potentially have the benefit of where you succeed you get your cost back and where you don't you don't have to pay the defendant's cost so that can be a real benefit although you do end up having to go down the much more formal route of getting medical evidence it can take a lot 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 longer and um, those the formality if you like and the time might be a bar to you wanting to bring a claim if it's really more of the sort of depression, anxiety, exacerbation type case rather than something more serious. That's really helpful to 
bear in mind, I suppose, as a sort of checklist when deciding between the two. Well, I think that covers all of the most important topics on the area we were discussing. So thank you very much for joining us today, Emma, and for all of your helpful and insightful comments. Thank you, Louisa. It's been nice to speak to you and I shall listen again to the next in the series. (laughs) Thanks very much.